The number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is... Escape velocity. Welcome to Escape Velocity Radio, Episode 1, Season 6. I am one of your hosts. You might know me as Chris Hanna. That's how I know myself. With me today is my good friend. <laughs> yes. He's not my friend. Why, why is Derek Hogue. <laughs> Hello, Chris. Good to be here. Thanks for it's having me. It's good to be back. Having you, this was your idea. <laughs> I'm so glad that I have you here. So here we are, reunited at last. Derek, we should welcome back former listeners of the G7 radio podcast. We should. And the short-lived propaganda podcast. The short-lived but excellent and incredibly worldwidely famous propaganda podcast. Was it? No. I think there were seven downloads. <laughs> so we are back. And uh, you know what? I'm glad that we are. I think our listeners are glad that we are because what has been happening in the land of podcasts? Nothing. Nothing of note. Nothing important. Really? There has been a sorely missing voice in the digital broadcasting landscape. And I think we're here to bring that back. And I think our listeners will thank us. And I think the world will thank us. (laughs) And this is not G7 Radio. No. This is not the Propaganda Podcast. It's not. But these are the two things which we have under our belts in the podcasting world that people may know you or I or us from, but they can expect new and exciting things from Escape Velocity Radio, can't they? They can. What's our mandate? Please explain to me what our mandate is. (laughs) I believe our mandate is is to expand the minds of the listenership to literally ex- <laughs> to literally expand our listenership's minds until they grow larger than the craniums in which they live. I think we have a rule that we are not allowed to talk about anything that we're not interested in, even if someone offers us millions of dollars to talk about that. For example, our first sponsor... <laughs> Sun-kissed fruit juice. (laughs) I hate sun-kissed fruit juice, but it is an excellent source of vitamin C, and if drank three times daily, can fulfill 250% of your daily recommended intake of vitamin C, not to mention copious amounts of your vitamin K, D, and B12. So, Chris, tell me, tell the world, what's, uh, what's going on? What have you been up to? 
Oh, the usual. Yep. Yeah. This was this was a big week for you, Chris. Big announcement. Your band is releasing a new album. Yeah. Propagandi is uh, releasing an album. Yeah. When, when does that come out? September 4th. Okay. And the album is called? Don't Tread on Me. <laughs> um, it's called Failed States, Derek. Failed States. Yes. And the first, the, the namesake of the album is as a single, it's available now. Um, so you have a new album coming out. That's right. Uh, I'm very excited about it. I've heard it. I love it. It's an excellent album. Perhaps your best to date. I kid you not. I kid you not. We also have a, another connection is that I might have been involved in the artwork process for this album. <laughs> with a one two. You did a great job, Derek. Thank you very much, Chris. I have to say. You I... did a better job making the record than I did laying out the record. Really? Yes. Took you more time. Oh. Boat, it took us more time. About three sure. years. Boat. No, it didn't take us three there years. Well, you know what? It's very, it's very exciting. New album coming out. Here, I'm let's excited. play a song from it. Let's play. You know what? Let's play Failed States. That was Failed States from the forthcoming record by Propagandy called Failed States. Available September 4th at your local drugstore. So, Chris, did you read this article um, in the Thai uh, about the em- Embridge execs getting bonuses this year? What's Thai? Thai, it's actually this pretty good uh, website out of BC. Yeah. And it's kind of. Uh, Kind of progressive, lefty, political news and analysis. Yawn. Yeah, it's a real snoozer. They, they got a hold of this 2011 management information circular uh, from Enbridge. Uh, the company's 12 directors, they voted to raise their annual retainers by $30,000. Mm-hmm. And they increased the compensation for CEO and President Patrick Daniel from $6 million to $8.1 million. 
in 2010. And this is after uh, they were responsible for, in July of 2010, the largest spill of bitumen ever recorded into the Kalamazoo River in Michigan. Just in case anybody is unfamiliar with Enbridge, they are an Alberta-based oil and natural gas company, one of the largest in Canada, I believe. Using their own reports, this is from Wikipedia, so (laughs) it tells you how fucking reliable (laughs) that is. But uh, using their own reports, Enbridge has had 804 spills between 1999 Mm -hmm. and 2010. Leaks. Leaks, sorry. Trickles. Trickles. Let's just call them trickles. So these spills have released approximately 168,645 barrels or... 26,812.4 cubic meters of hydrocarbons into the environment. Whoa. So what I don't know is what percentage that is of the amount of uh, oil or bitumen that they have transported through their pipelines. But regardless, this company is responsible for what I would term in my professional scientific and legal opinion, major environmental crimes. There's a quote from the circular, which I thought was just succinct and funny, is that the Marshall incident, this is referring to the July 2010 uh, trickle in Kalamazoo, Uh, the Marshall incident was factored into the 2010 short-term incentive rewards for all of the named executives. (laughs) So I don't know if they're implying that they got a bonus because they dealt with it well, or it would have been bigger if they hadn't had this bill. Weird. Yeah. Chris, you had some experience uh, on the Ebridge front last year. Yeah, I'm a shareholder. <laughs> You're one of the, You got your salary increased by thirty thousand. Thirty thousand dollars. No, what was the? Uh, there was a. There was a some sort of showcase. They were sponsoring a national music festival in Canada uh, called Prairie Scene, where theoretically a lot of great talent from Manitoba would show up in Ottawa and perform for delegates from all around the world. And uh, I don't know, it sounded okay, I guess. Um, but it's sponsored by Enbridge. Enbridge essentially trying to buy um, sort of some sort of street cred. Yeah, some cultural attaché. Yeah, show, show people that without Enbridge, there'd be no art. <laughs> Which and is true. Art didn't start until Enbridge was founded in 1999, to be honest. That's true. But I mean, it is becoming more and more true. More and more artists are financially beholden to corporations for this very reason. But you spearheaded were, an effort to have I a don't sort know of I, petition? I, no, the, I didn't spearhead. I, all I did was sign a piece of paper. <laughs> and, and get assaulted on air oh. verbally by a radio shock jock in Alberta, which was... No, hilarious. Saskatchewan. Oh, it was Saskatchewan. Yeah. And so, so you did... Uh, you spoke with a bunch of other artists, Manitoba and Saskatchewan artists, who had been invited. Yeah. And some, some were sympathetic, but nervous about not playing right. a festival that would be a payday for them. Yes. Which, I mean, shows you the extent of the problem mm-hmm. with music and uh, corporate influence. But others, John Sampson, took up the, uh, took up the call mm-hmm. and actually got people like Miriam Taves signed on. Well-known, the, uh, well-known Manitoba author. Yeah. I mean, it had a little bit of steam, the whole thing. We, there was some media stuff. But the event went on. The event went yeah, on, and obviously nobody gave a shit about us not being there. Although, I, I mean, I think any 
sort of critical attention paid uh, not only just to Enbridge itself, but to Enbridge's attempt to buy street cred through the arts community. Yeah. Um, it's a good thing. Yeah. Didn't didn't Winnipeg filmmaker Noam Gonick, wasn't he uh, going to bring some some representatives out there? Well, he, he offered, he was signed on and didn't want to back out, but he he was in full support otherwise of mm-hmm. the petition to remove Enbridge as a sponsor and offered to um, give his stage time to um, people from the communities affected, particularly in Alberta and BC. And, and that happened? No. Oh. <clears throat> Too bad. Yeah. So related to Enbridge destroying the natural world, which we should value and cherish... <laughs> There was a, a study that was recently published, and I read this coverage in the Vancouver Observer, article titled, Earth on Brink of Irreversible Collapse of Global Ecosystem, the new SFU study warns. That doesn't sound good. It doesn't. It sounds terrible. Um, and uh, I quote here, Dr. Arne Moores, an evolutionary biologist at Simon Fraser University, explains the theory behind a groundbreaking report he co-authored in the respected scientific journal Nature this week, Approaching a State Shift in the Earth's Biosphere. This is a report that was put together with a collaboration of 18 paleontologists, computer modelers, mathematicians, biologists, and ecologists. So this is a wide array of... Any proctologists? There was one proctologist, but he was just there for... He had uh, his head up his ass. But... uh, There's a wide array of dorks, basically, that are working on this. Right. The theory here is that uh, changing systems can reach what they call a rapid tipping point. They liken it to an iceberg suddenly flipping or an epidemic. Flipping. Exploding. You know how icebergs flip? No. This is a documented phenomena. By who? You know what? Look that shit up. I will. Okay. I want to see footage of one flipping. (laughs) This study, to me, seems like... Obviously, there's a lot of speculation. Uh, it's a little bit worst-case scenario because, right. obviously, there's no way to know that we're going to, at some point soon, hit this right. tipping point. But uh, they're talking about, basically, a catastrophic state change. Oh, God. I don't want to know about that. <laughs> I feel like we're in it. Well, we're at the beginnings. In my humble scientific opinion, <laughs> we're in the beginnings of this catastrophic state change. But I'll just quote a couple of juicy tidbits from the article here okay. that our listeners might be interested in. I'll, of course, put a link to this in on the, the website. Show nuts. In the show notes. This study, what they did is they looked at rising carbon emissions, a landscape highly dissected with roads, the large conversion of the planet to agriculture and urban and other uses. Basically, we're defoliating the planet. Right. Uh, so then, quoting here, uh, what they've done in the study is uh, that's the most interesting, is weave all these different phenomena together, and they're saying that there's a dramatic state shift ahead for the Earth. That's what's frightening, the catastrophic nature of what they say may be ahead. The cause of such a catastrophic state change, the nature study concludes, is human activity from farming to industry, from carbon emissions to habitat destruction. Situated as a whole, the devastation wrought by human industry and population growth have become, quote, global scale forcing mechanisms, the authors argue. The report describes such mechanisms as sledgehammers in their impact. Anticipating biological surprises on global as well as local scales, therefore, has become especially crucial to guiding the future of the global ecosystem 
and human societies. So yeah, this seems, it's, there's a little bit of link bait, I think, going on with the title of this article and even the title of the study. What is link bait? Like it's, it's like uh, almost intentionally hyperbolic in order to raise alarm and get people to click on it. Well, that does sound alarming, though, the content. It is, yes, it is, it, is, it is alarming that serious individuals who study these phenomena as their livelihoods are speculating that there's a good chance that this is coming. We don't know when. I mean, it could be in 50, 100, 200 years. We don't know. But, right now. Or it could be the start of it right now. But we don't, we don't know what our elderly years or your son's teenage years even will hold in terms of the state of the planet. Yes. Every week now I, I buy a flat of canned tomatoes. Really? <laughs> no, but I should be. But you have to eat them within six months or something. Oh no, you got a couple years. So there's that. So there's that, the end of the world. So that's good. Chris, that's- I just I just finished uh, I just finished reading Ark. Yes. By Stephen Baxter. Right. You've read this book as well. I've read Ark true? and the follow-up of the Triquel um, Flood. Is, isn't Flood first? I think Flood is first. Flood is first. Oh, you finished Ark, you said? I read Ark, but I did not read Flood. You didn't read Flood, but you read Ark. Yes. I skipped one. So is that the wrong thing to do? No, no, it's was fine. Flood, I read the reviews. I read, was reading reviews of Flood, and it seemed multiple people there were saying, skip this one and no, just read no, Ark. No, no, no. Flood is, flood is terrifying. Ark, Ark. Ark is also terrifying. But Ark is much more fast-paced. Yes, I like that. I will go back go and back read, and read it. it first. And then read Ark again. Yes. Um, but this is an excellent... Okay, Stephen Baxter, for, for listeners who are unaware, he is a sci-fi slash speculative, speculative fiction, fiction author um, from the UK. I, I haven't read a book of his that has not blown me away in at least one dimension. That is a definite recommendation. But uh, Ark... Just to very briefly summarize, with no spoilers, it takes place in, it's not, it's like the 2030s, 2040s. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the earth has uh, been inundated with a flood of biblical proportions. Biblical proportions, but not from a traditional sea level rise, as some people think, like melting glaciers or what have you, but from stores of, of water deep in the earth's crust, which right. I guess I'm assuming he, he's always very thorough in his scientific uh, basis for his books. So there must be some... I mean, it's highly speculative. Yeah, highly speculative. But, yes. I mean, that's where science begins with high speculation. So they're talking about um, sea level rises uh, of like, I don't know, I think it caps out at like uh, 85 meters or something. No, no, no. Isn't it? it? By the end of, the, end of that book? Isn't no, it? it's... It's miles. Really? Miles. It's crazy. Okay. Yeah, basically, I mean... Like, there's no, there is no more by land By the end of the book, there's no land left on the planet. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, in the early parts of the book, uh, the U.S. government has moved to Colorado, which has the highest land in the, in the continental U.S., and uh, various projects begin. What, how are we going to deal with this? So some of them are rafts. Uh, others are underwater submarines that would serve as transport to arcs on the on the floor. But the one which the book follows is an actual spaceship that will find another Earth. Find another Earth. Take a small cabal of young humans who have like raised from birth almost to be a crew for the ship with genetic diversity built in and yada yada yada, and so they can populate another Earth. And uh, horror and mayhem 
ensue as the human species is wont to do. So I highly recommend it. Fascinating book. Uh, Explores some super cool and scary ideas. I think there's some speculative fiction by some authors uh, can be sometimes overwrought on the details of all the minutia of what these spaceships or worlds or theories would look like. Kim Stanley Robinson does a lot of that, but I found, so if you're afraid of that, fear not, there is not some of that, but not too much. And he's not quite so far away from that, that he's Robert Sawyer. No, exactly. Somewhere in between Robert Sawyer and Kim Stanley Robinson, you may find Stephen Baxter, perhaps a little closer to Kim Stanley Robinson. Yes. No, it's not, it's not very but as fast paced. pulpy. Or, yeah. And he doesn't just pump out the books like... He does pump out the books. Stephen Baxter? He fucking pumps out the books. Okay. I'm not paying attention. But yeah, highly recommended. Ark by Stephen Baxter. Get it! Rent it tonight! And on the heels of that, another book I just started, Chris, is... Uh, wow, this is a fucking book club we got going it on. It is. There. Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt. What's that? By Chris Hedges, illustrated oh, by Joe oh, Sacco. Right. I want to see that. Can I borrow it? Uh, yes, you can. I'm not done with it yet. When are you done? I'm working can on I it Can I borrow right it before you're done? Actually, you could, because I'm actually, at the same time, I'm reading Galileo's Dream. Oh, that's a good book. By Kim Stanley Robinson. That is a great, great, great I'm book. I'm kind of engrossed in that one right now, so you could borrow the Hedges one. I will go so far as to say Gal- Galileo's Dream is Kim Stanley Robinson's best. Really? Yeah. That is a bold statement. It's fucking incredible. I have, I have been thoroughly enjoying it, yeah. I have to say. I'm only 21% done. Um... <laughs> <laughs> but this new Hedges book is, it's well, in traditional Hedges fashion, it is a bleak, frank assessment of the subject matter. They're covering... But it's, it's illustrated. But it's illustrated. It's like a comic book, right? Well, it, no, like, it's only partial. It's Hedges writing, and then some pages are illustrated to accompany you oh, know, okay. a particular narrative uh, by Joe Sacco. But then there's segments that so it's are not, done. it's not Chris Hedges with a cape flying around... <laughs> Beirut. <laughs> that would actually be, that would be something I would read. This, I'm just going to tell her when I read. No, they're exploring what they call uh, America's sacrifice zones. Parts of the U.S. that have been uh, uh, given over to commerce or colonialism, basically sacrificed for the quote-unquote good of the nation. So he starts out on uh, Pine Ridge Reservation in South right. Dakota, uh, with the Lakota Sioux and, you know, how their community has been devastated by colonialism and genocide. Um, and he focuses on uh, this town in Nebraska, which is called White Clay, Nebraska. It's only a block and a half long with five or six permanent residents, and it exists to sell alcohol to people who live on the Pine Ridge Reservation, which has been a dry reserve for over 100 years. Hmm. And so this town, this, it's, oh, it's its only purpose. They sell over, last year they sold over 4 million cans of beer. Hmm. There's actually a lawsuit, <clears throat> unmentioned in the book, but I heard a piece on The Current a couple weeks ago how the lawyer, Tom White, for the Oglala Lakota Nation, they're bringing a $500 million lawsuit against the beer companies who sell beer to these two beer stores in this non-town and, uh, and against the stores themselves uh, because he claims they're violating the law because it's just it's like a front, basically, to sell beer to a place where beer is not allowed. Right. Um, but he starts there just about how the community has been devastated. So and, he, and just to be clear, some reserves are dry because of the devastating effects alcohol has had on 
on a dispossessed, impoverished indigenous population. Yeah. But yeah, so he he starts there with a you know deeply disturbing chapter interviewing you know some residents of uh, Pine Ridge, going over the crazy history there with Wounded Knee, and you know, there's a whole backstory. Um, and then he moves on to talking about uh, Camden, New Jersey, which is ultra impoverished, basically all black uh, city in, in New Jersey, which is kind of the poster child for white flight. And uh, the destruction. What is white flight? When white people leave somewhere? Yeah, basically you have multi-racial or multi-ethnic community where everybody's taking part. There's schools, there's business, there's a vibrant community. And then the white people get afraid basically and they move away uh, to the suburbs. They take a bunch of businesses with them. Ah. Businesses close, no funding for schools. There's no tax base. This is what's happened Camden, kind of what's happening to, to Detroit now in the past uh, 15 or 20 years. It, but it's interesting because there was a connection with me because I work, I have, a, I have a client, they're called Fair Share Housing Center. They are a nonprofit legal organization and they have a development arm called Fair, Fair Share Housing Development. They're the driving force behind something called the Mount Laurel Doctrine. Mount Laurel is a suburb in New Jersey outside of Camden where all the white people move to and had all this new development, and uh, there was a legal battle taken to to force the developers to include affordable housing in this new development, so that you know it wouldn't just be a rich white community. So that forced out all of the uh, existing black residents, and it was a landmark decision. They won, and now this Fair Share Housing Center, who I work for them, I do I do their websites. They uh, they have to constantly battle with every new development in suburban New Jersey to enforce this Mount Laurel doctrine and make sure that there's the required percentage of affordable housing Mm. there. And uh, it's just a constant battle for them. Every new development, they try to use loopholes and get around it. But they have now, after, you know, decades of doing this, they have the hard evidence that if you force affordable housing in these communities and traditionally disadvantaged or poor people get to live there, Guess what? Their standard of living goes up. Their kids are better educated, and it's to the benefit of everyone rather than ghettoizing people. This is a kind of proven way under our current, you know, society to actually reduce poverty, uh, increase education, and you know, kind of stop this vicious circle of poverty and racism and drugs and everything else. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's just, you know, that's as far as I've gotten in the book, but it's, it's interesting because he's taking seemingly disparate, but completely related, uh, stories of how, um, colonialism and capital kind of plows through anything in its way and leaves these kind of domestic war zones, basically. So the book is by Chris Hedges and Joe Sacco and it's called what again? It's called Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt. Hmm. Um, so it just came out highly recommended read. And especially if you're into graphic novels, there is a good portion of it. That's the graphic novel variety. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks for that, Derek. Hey, no problem. Derek, who's Wab Canoe? I'll tell you who he is. Wab Canoe is an Anishinaabe hip hop artist from the Anigaming First Nation in Northwestern Ontario. You know, at the time of this interview, he was working as a reporter for CBC. 
And as you may or may not know, he went on to host... The Eighth Fire. The Eighth Fire. That's right, Derek. You do know something. I, that is the one thing I know, generally. A CBC documentary series called Eighth Fire, Aboriginal Peoples, Canada, and the Way Forward, which CBC described as a provocative, high-energy journey through Aboriginal country, showing why we need to fix Canada's 500-year-old relationship with Indigenous peoples, a relationship mired in colonialism, conflict, and denial. This sounds like a promising concept for a television show. Somehow I've only managed to see two of the four episodes. But I can honestly say to you, Derek, that if even half of what is shown on TV was even half as good as these episodes, I would not have thrown my TV out the window those years ago. This interview with Wab Canoe, Derek, was originally recorded for the short-lived and incredibly unpopular podcast called The Propaganda Podcast. Heard it. Listened to it. You liked it. Loved it. Favorite podcast of all time. You may well then recognize fellow Propaganda member Todd Kowalski's angelic voice. He is very much like an angel. He is. By the way, Wab Canoe makes a cameo. That's right. On our new record. He does. That's right. He sounds great. He is a very mellifluous voice. So, <laughs> so you can see the connection here. There's a thread running through everything. And that thread is... What is that thread, Chris? I don't know. Oh. So here's the interview with Wab Canoe. Wab Canoe, welcome to the Propagandy Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. We got Wab Canoe here, so we might as well use our time to uh, search into the depths of his intelligence. Whoa. <laughs> so you have a song on your record called Fuck John Wayne, <laughs> which, uh, which is kind of cool because the first uh, like the first punk song I ever really, or not one of the first punk records I ever had, had a song called John Wayne Was a Nazi by Millions of Dead Cops. Came out in 85, I think, right? 82. 82. Holy shit. And uh, yeah, so I just wanted to see what your, uh, like, I think we can kind of guess what the intent is of the yeah. song, but can I hear what you're, like, what inspired it kind of directly, the tune? Yeah, well, I'll just tell you about, like, what we were doing when we when we wrote it, because yeah, that, yeah. that, that, that pretty much says it all. Um, last summer, I was up in the Paw at this music festival. I was, like, performing and then hosting their stage, and then um, I forget which night it was, but we were up there doing that, and we brought up, like, uh, like me, my DJ, and my friend Lorenzo, who sings. We uh, brought up like a laptop and a microphone and an inbox, and so we set up a little like portable recording studio in our hotel room. And so rather than like getting into trouble and like going out to the bar or like the parties on the res, we just like go back to the hotel, hang out, and make some music. And so like one day we're uh, sitting around and Boogie like made the beat first, so we're like listening to the to the beat and like started discussing what we wanted to do with it. But then like this. John Wayne movie was on TV like it was just sort of like playing in the background and then you know it's like the typical John Wayne thing so there's like you know, like all these like you know Indians on horseback getting like shot up and like you know John Wayne like the one man army is like conquering the world and saving all the the good the good pilgrims from the the, the evil the evil savages and we were just watching that I was like you know what fuck John Wayne <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah and then so yeah and then just um I just uh, made the chorus, and then I went down to the music festival, and then did the uh, the hosting bit that I had to do that day, and then I came back and then did the verse at uh, 
at evening and then we went out and uh, listened to it in the car as we were cruising around that night so it, it came together pretty fast but yeah that was a concept is you know like all these cowboy movies and western movies that are like you know the uh epitome of the uh, the american idea of who they are right like for us it's bullshit like they 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 believe in like manifest destiny and that you know they conquered the these people in america but you know at least for my people that's not true like we were never conquered like we we gave as good as we got and you know like like i say like we were never defeated we were cheated you know like that's sort of what happened to the ojibwe whenever the cavalry fought us we won and whenever the cavalry fought the sioux like they lost and so you know just you know other stuff happened like the residential schools and the indian act and the broken treaties to sort of get get us to where we are today so i just like i don't know i don't really like the you know you know the western the western genre as like a way <laughs> yeah, of like care. programming people into because yeah. like even here in canada that's not our history but still like that's what everybody thinks like yeah. everybody thinks like the europeans came to canada and then like you know cowboys like john wayne drove out the uh drove out the natives and then they built canada which is not true but from watching western movies that's what like a lot of people that we grow up around believe right like yeah. even my coworkers at cbc kind of believe that and so i always have to say like stop like no that's not that's not the history at all and so on uh on like the deep level that's what it's about is rejecting the you know the western genre as like uh, the explanation for the history of north america and then on a more you know realistic level it's just like you know fuck john wayne like we have our own heroes we don't we don't think that's good like there was this guy from nashville who came up and he's like a white country singer dude and he came up from nashville and he was singing at this like march for missing and murdered women i don't know how he like i think one of the reserve stations brought him up and so they brought him to this like missing and murdered thing and like the first thing he sang was like what would john wayne do (laughs) (laughs) so like i went up after and i was like you know what screw john wayne I guess it's kind of along the same lines. You almost said the line, but you also have a song called Heroes. Yeah. Which is almost perhaps self-explanatory, but yeah, if you want to explain it, that would be good. You know what? Us. Like uh, me and Todd, we go to the, this this gym, right, together. That's like how I, how I know Todd. And uh, one of the coaches there, this guy, uh, Giuseppe, like one day we're talking and he's he was doing like this really cool like uh, after school program for Aboriginal youth where they were bringing in kids like who maybe couldn't afford to have a gym membership and like showing them like some martial arts stuff and then like we were just talking about it and then like just in passing Joe said like uh, you know the Aboriginal community really needs heroes and then like later on I was thinking about it I was like I don't know stuck in my head and I was like well wait we already have heroes eh so that's like how the song starts it's yeah, like yeah, you know yeah. they say the Aboriginal community needs heroes but we already have our own and then so I just like I just jacked up this Canaan song for it because yeah. like I liked the song at, at the time and then um, like his rap and that song starts with like Mandela and then uh, uh, somebody else <laughs> I can't remember but his rap starts with like two 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 global heroes 
And then so I thought like, oh, cool. So what if I just like asked the question of like all these Aboriginal heroes, people that I look up to. So then I just rapped about like Phil Fontaine because he's like he did a lot for the residential school uh, movement. Like he basically put it on the agenda himself by telling his own story. It was like the first time anybody went public with like a story of sexual abuse pretty much in, in the residential schools. And that was like 20 years ago and it paved the way for like the apology and the compensation and everything that happened. And then like my friend Juanique, she was at the, at the Oka crisis and she was like 14 years old at the time. And when they were leaving Oka, she was stabbed by a, um, a military baton or a bayonet, I mean. And like, I guess this, the knife went in just you know, inches away from her heart, so she could have died. And then the army left her on the on the bus where they were holding everybody for like you know more than more than a day without wow. medical treatment. Yeah, and she went from that, you know, where the Mohawks were fighting the Canadian soldiers, to like, I don't, I, I think maybe ten years later, she was representing. She was the captain of Team Canada for the the water polo team at oh, the Olympics. Right. So I was like, I thought that was pretty huge, like to be like face to face against Canada to yeah, representing Canada on the global stage. So like that was pretty huge. And then like Tommy Prince is like a big hero here um, because he like um, was like a big, you know, uh, war hero in World War Two and, you know, displayed bravery, like, you know, doing reconnaissance and military missions. Uh, Kateri. Tekakwitha, the uh, Mohawk, uh, who, like, a lot of people believe should be a saint. Uh, Buffy St. Marie, who was, like, a singer, who was, like, out there, like, this native woman, like, out in the 60s, doing it on her own, like, performing in Greenwich Village and stuff like that, when, like, in Kenora, they probably wouldn't even, like, let her into a restaurant, you know? Mm-hmm. So that was pretty huge. So all these people, like, that have been doing stuff, like, right, you know, since time immemorial. So I just chose some of the ones that I thought were interesting because um, like what Chuck D from Public Enemy said about rap music, he said like rap music is black America's CNN, like this is how like we report to each other. So I thought like native hip hop is like native Canada's, it's not even like CNN, it's like everything. It's like rather than books, kids like learn from rap music. And so a lot in Winnipeg, a lot of kids want to be gangsters because they hear like native people making gangster rap so i just thought like well why don't i put like some history into there so these kids can look up to some uh positive influences and it's been huge like it's a jacked up canon beat and then the video on youtube is just still photos that i pulled off like the internet but like people love it like it's got like you know like a bunch of views and like the comments are crazy like one of the comments is like i'm a nine-year-old girl and i'm like crying right now watching this because i'm so proud like you know so like that's huge to me had a louis real become a buffalo soldier stood up to canada and the father of manitoba had a fontaine get the apology he told the story then he said come on follow me that's the gift I guess I'll pass it on like the teachings passed at the Sundance before dawn. How did Juanique take a knife to the ribs? Then represent this country, damn she forgive. And how does Leonard Peltier get out of bed each day? Finding hope in the hopeless, it's the Indian way. And why did Tommy Prince fight for all Canadian people? When right here at home he wasn't considered an equal. Overseas he fought with the heart of a warrior, then came back home. I guess one reason why we have you here is I guess you would definitely be on your way to be considered 
if not a hero, but at least uh, <laughs> like maybe you know, but like a like a huge role model in the city. Yeah, like, I I just try and do uh, like I don't try and think about that too much. I just try and do do right, like yeah, which makes a lot someone of time. actually a true role model, though, right? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it yeah. sort of makes me uncomfortable yeah, to talk about yeah. that like that. Uh, but even like not even just for native kids, but like. Like, for me, like, there's a reason why we have you here is because it's inspiring, you know? I go to jiu-jitsu, I see a guy who's doing this, he's doing that, he's doing this, he's playing music, he's he's on TV, he's <laughs> here, he's in some award show, he's there he's doing judo, there he's kickboxing, I don't even know what he's doing, you know? Then he's rapping, and it's like, you know, like, each person should inspire the next person to, like, go even harder, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah like, I believe we're all we're all the same like we're all citizens of the world we're all brothers and sisters and then like my personal mo is like i believe like in just uh you know doing the most that you can with your life like with your time on earth like life is a gift and so like i don't worry too much about failure i just if something interests me like martial arts or music or broadcasting or journalism i just give it a shot and take it as far as i can how did you get interested in, in the broadcast stuff? No, it almost happened by accident. Like I did, um, I wrote a letter to the editor of the Winnipeg Free Press about Todd Bertuzzi playing for Team Canada. Mm-hmm. Like it's a totally random thing, like <laughs> in two thousand five or whatever, because it was like a big controversy at Were the time. Were you against it? No, I was. I was. I wouldn't say I was for it. I was like, give him a chance, kind of thing. Like everybody's like, he's a criminal. Yeah. You know, he can't represent our country. But I was like, wow. You know, he, it sounds like he's, you know, first of all, it sounds like he's, he feels guilty and expressed remorse. And now he's asking for a second chance. So I said, well, why not give him a second chance if he's the best guy? And then he went to Turin and played horribly. And it like, <laughs> <laughs> turned out he wasn't the best guy. They probably should have sent Crosby or somebody. <laughs> all but, because of your letter. Yeah, all because of my letter. But then somebody at the CBC saw that letter in the free press. And then they looked me up in the phone book and called yeah. me up. And they said, hey, you want to turn that into a rant? Huh. on the radio and so I did and then it just started steamrolling from there but as I got into it then like the more I got interested in it and started thinking like hey there's a lot of cool stuff you can do here and then plus like there's like the whole issue of like how native people are portrayed in the media in Winnipeg which is like as criminals and you know victims and stuff like that mm-hmm. so I thought like well hey there's opportunity not to slant the coverage but to maybe just introduce like new stories where it's like positive and you know people doing good things a lot of our listeners are not from canada manitoba or canada so yeah they don't even know what a residential school is and even as i was growing up and heard about them i thought residential school that doesn't sound so bad mm-hmm. a residence in a school what is a residential school yeah the residential school is a system in canada to it was a system of cultural genocide in canada um because the United uh, Nations defines genocide as taking the children away from a people with the purpose of breaking down their ties to their community and their culture, which is what happened. Like the term Stephen Harper said, the goal was to kill the Indian and save the child. So if Stephen Harper said that, you know, that's that's the pretty like whitewashed version of what happened. You know what I mean? But basically from uh you know, it's tough to pinpoint the beginning, but roughly around like the 1850s, 1860s, churches started taking native kids away from their communities and boarding them and uh, teaching them about, you know, like uh, the schooling stuff, but also teaching them about religion. And then in the second half 
of the 19th century, the Canadian government got involved and made it law and made it uh, a mandate that if you were Indian, you had to be taken away from your family. And so they chose five churches in Canada, um, the, the Catholic Church probably being the biggest of the five. And uh, there was hundreds and hundreds of schools across Canada where every single uh, native kid from around, you know, like I said, the second half of the 1900s until 1960 was taken away from their family. And then there was a few other places that continued after 1960. Like I think the last one closed in 1980, 1980-something. But basically, so there was like a roughly 150 years where uh, um, ab- Aboriginal kids were taken away from their families for, in some cases, 10 months of the year, or some cases they were just taken for good until they were adults. And while they were at those schools, um, because the thinking at the time was that Aboriginal people are inferior, they were um, basically given a vocational education so that they become janitors and carpenters and stuff like that. And then uh, they were given a religious education according to whatever church that they were at. And um, they were taught that uh, the Aboriginal religion, way of life, culture, and uh, people were wrong and were of the devil. And so they were basically taught to hate themselves. And then to compound that, for some reason, these places seemed to attract uh, like a lot of like, you know, sexual predators and stuff like that. So sexual abuse, well, first of all, physical abuse was like, that's just how you raised kids back in the day, apparently, because these people thought that Indians were animals rather than real people. So they just used to like be ferociously like abusive, like just, you know, beating them with rulers and sticks and all sorts of things, but also attracted lots of, like, sexual, you know, deviants and predators. So there's all sorts of, like, sexual abuse problems and people being raped, people being uh, molested in different ways. And this went on for, like, hundreds, hundreds of years, well, decades anyways. And uh, the finally it stopped in, in the 60s where they started moving away from that. But then, uh, yeah, but basically it's, you know, it was like, people compare it to the neutron bomb like in the aboriginal community like the neutron bomb supposedly is this tool of war that you drop in a place and it destroys the people but leaves the building standing so that the the conquerors can come in and use the facility but that's what the analogy is that like the residential schools was like a neutron bomb dropped in the aboriginal community it just like destroyed the people and left the shells and you recently spoke at a conference called hidden legacy or hidden legacies, and could you let people know what the goal of the conference was, and maybe let them know what you were specifically talking about? Sure. The conference was um, about the intergenerational effects of residential school, which is like it's a term that's becoming like used a lot now. But basically, what it means is like, how does the stuff that happened in residential school? Uh, a generation or two generations or three generations affect the people today. Um, and then obviously there are still a lot of people who went to residential schools around. So it's different. Like for my family, like I'm the first generation not to go on the native side of my family. So like even like my older cousins and stuff, they went to residential school, like they're taken away and put in those schools. Uh, but other families, it's more two, three generations back. Um, and part of that is because a lot of people went to residential school, had kids super young, and then their kids had super young. Or their kids had kids super young. So sometimes there's like, you know, a kid who's like 18 now, and they're, you know, 
grandparent or great grandparent went to residential school. But basically, the whole idea of the conference was to explore, like, how is it affecting people today? And the simple answer is that, like, um, the parenting and the family was destroyed. The family structure was destroyed by residential schools. So everybody who came after grew up without uh, good parents and grew up uh, without a solid family. And so that led to all sorts of, you know, even if it was just that, then it, that led to, you know, people, you know, having a lot of like self-esteem and like self-hatred issues and wondering whether anybody cared about them, which leads to all sorts of problems with like addiction or, you know, being vulnerable to being exploited or things like that. Um, but then also like a lot of people in residential schools, because of all the abuse that happened in those schools, learned to be abusers themselves. And so they went on to abuse their kids or other people in their communities. And then so that created like this whole other legacy of like abuse and like you know sexual issues and like my friend uh was just telling me the other day like she believes that like you know like the whole like sexuality in the aboriginal community is sort of like torqued because like we're still like have this like weird sort of like you know influence from like perverted like priests and nuns and shit like that and so there's all these different ways that it it, it affected on the on the people so what i did is um I spoke uh, about a video that I made, mainly just about, you know, trying to, uh, you know, um, help people who went to residential schools or whose parents went to residential schools learn an effective way to share their story. Because, like, I believe, like, everybody should hear hear the story here in Canada and it should be, like, a, a part of the history that everybody's aware of just so that, like, we never let anything similar happen again. So at the CBC last year, um, in 2010, as part of the coverage of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's launch, I did a story on my family's experience, and it was just sort of three generations tracking it through our family. So I started with my dad, who went to St. Mary's Residential School in Kenora, and talked about like this horrible stuff that happened to him there. He was raped by a nun when he was just like a, a little kid, and then you know exploring his feelings about that. And then um, talking about how when his dad died, they had the funeral at the residential school. And then he stood up next to the coffin, like according to our tradition. And then right an hour later, while his, you know, his dad is basically, you know, the, the earth is still fresh on top of his body. Like they called an assembly and they beat him up in front of like all his friends and relatives just to like show an example, like don't, you know, pray in the uh, traditional way and like all these horrible things and then how afterwards you know he you know became alcoholic and abusive and how that led to problems with like my older brothers and sisters like I have two older brothers who are both dead one um, committed suicide the other one kind of died in mysterious circumstances which basically means like some people think it was suicide other people think it was just like a sort of an accident so um you know, so that created a lot of problems and friction in our family. And then so I grew up sort of in the aftermath of all this craziness that was going on. And then uh, so the story goes, it ends with my son. And then, uh, you know, asking, you know, what is it going to be like for him? Like, are we going to make the change? Are we going to, 
you know, do the hard work and be good parents so that little boys who are five years old and little girls who are the same age, you know, can grow up free of abuse and all these problems? Or are we just going to, like, leave it the way it is and just behave the way that we were taught to behave and then the whole cycle continues? So I did that story for TV and um, people seemed to really respond to it. And I think the reason why was because my son... Um, was a very relatable character for them. Like when they see like my dad, who's like this old native guy, they probably don't relate to him or they see black and white photos of like kids in residential school, especially like dark skinned native kids don't really relate to it. But when you see like a little five year old boy who's light skinned and he has like light hair, which is my son, like they're like all of a sudden people are like, holy shit, like what if that happened to my kid? What if that happened to my girl? Like how would I feel if somebody took my kids away by force and then I couldn't see them for 10 months? And then they came home, they were like strangers, you know? And then, so I think people really responded to it because we presented it in a way where they could ask themselves those questions rather than being all preachy and saying like, hey, you know, here's why residential schools were bad. And then so I talked about that at the conference and like read some of the viewer feedback and emails and Facebook messages I got and, uh, you know, just shared uh, my experience um, and the things that I learned there. And people seemed to like it. People responded to it well. Like I heard this one guy, the storyteller Richard Van Camp, who's like an author, and he said, like, the sign that your stories are being heard well is when people feel compelled to share their own story in response to you and that's what happened there like after I finished talking like old men old women who went to residential schools they like just like opened up and they're like started talking about the crazy stuff that happened to them like running away and being caught or running away and ending up in like you know hundreds of miles from home in like strange towns or being abused and like all these crazy things and like super heavy day super heavy day like I, I presented the video four times and each time people spoke and you know started telling their own story which told me like a lot of like how much you know need, of that needs to happen for people to feel better about themselves and how much you know listening could happen for people outside the native community to learn about it and so that was really good but of that whole conference like the thing that stands out in my mind was um what uh, this guy Bobby Joseph said he's like an old man he's like the head of the Indian Residential School Survivors Society so he's like the organization that you know lobbies on behalf of people who went to residential school and he went to residential school when he was young and then he gave like this big speech at the dinner the key the keynote address at the dinner and he was like explaining about all the horrible things that happened to him and you know being beaten up and feeling bad and then going on to become an alcoholic having a family when he was young but drinking every day and driving his wife to leave him and she took the kids and he never saw his kids and then eventually like he hit rock bottom and his friend came and like sort of saved him took him out fishing and then like while they were fishing forced him to sober up and then from there he slowly made his path to recovery but then like during the speech he he told the audience like what he learned about himself and his family and all that and it was like this was the message that the whole conference was waiting to hear and he said you know I want to say to all the children of residential school survivors I want to say to my children it's not that we didn't love you we always loved you you were always our hope you were always our dreams but we didn't know how to love you we didn't know how to show affection you know and that's so that's the thing that stays with me because 
that's what it's all about. Like, that's how I felt with, with my dad. You know, I was like, does this guy love me? Does he even care? Like, does this guy just hate me when I was growing up? And like everybody else at the place, you know, they feel the same way about their parents or their grandparents. Like, why, why is grandma only like mad at me all the time? Why is, why are these people beating me up? Stuff like that. So it was a really interesting, really interesting, pretty heavy, long ass day of experiences. But mm-hmm. I think it was, it was cool because it's sort of moving the, discussion of residential schools from like well here's the bad stuff that happened which you know still some of that some of that needs to happen but it's also like moving it towards like okay now how did we become you know guilty of doing stuff in our own families and our own community and so yeah I, th- I think that's good and it's like one lady got up I think she's from Israel and she's talking about like how uh like you don't you don't hear like people talking about the Armenian genocide like oh you know give me uh give me compensation or like an apology and stuff like that it's just like we just get over it or something like that but i was like well no it's not right you know people if they if you want people to feel good about themselves and to live out the rest of the days in your life like you have to give them a chance to do that to share first of all what happened to them and then to look at themselves and realize here this is how i did bad afterwards and then hopefully have a like a reconciliation or like a healing moment afterwards so that they can improve so that left me really hopeful because it you know tells me that this can happen for native people and it can happen for for non-native people too who care about it you're listening to our interview with broadcast journalist and hip-hop artist wab canoe on escape velocity radio chris that was an intense bit about the residential schools there it was indeed uh i thought it was interesting because the few times that you do hear uh, accounts of residential schools in the media, it's not very often told directly from someone who's had, you know, direct consequences and family experience uh, in the residential school system. And uh, it's really intense to have those firsthand accounts. Definitely. He also went on to describe a traditional ceremony called the Sundance, which I found really interesting. Yeah, let's listen to that. Yeah, Sundance is... Um it's my religion, and basically what it is is uh, the one I go to in South Dakota is the Lakota ceremony. So they're the Sioux Sioux people, and so uh, the ceremony is like it starts with a few days of purification where you like get your mind and your body like in in order, and then for four days. Well, first you you go get the tree, so a giant cottonwood tree is cut down, and then they bring it and they put it in the center of the circle. And then uh, for four days after that, you dance around the tree in different, like, formations that the the medicine men who would decide, like, based on the constellations and these different teachings that they have. So you dance around, and then um, you're fasting, and you're, uh, yeah, so fasting from food and fasting from water, so you don't eat or drink. And then um, you don't really sleep sleep a whole lot either because... Like, uh, you go to sleep, like, maybe at midnight, and then they wake you up at, like, 4 or 5 in the morning to go to a sweat lodge. So you go to a sweat lodge, and then you go back out, and you do it again. Then you have a sweat, and then you go back to sleep. And then on the third or fourth day, usually, then you do, like, a a piercing ceremony. So they, uh, like, they basically, they just, like, grab your skin on your chest or on your back, and then they cut a hole in it, and then they put a wooden peg through the hole. And then they tie two of those to the tree. And then you can break either from the tree or by running backwards and pulling the, the stakes out 
or they put the rope through the tree and then tie it to a horse and then the horse takes off and pulls it out or you can do hanging which is basically like like a pulley that they put over the tree and then guys on the other side will pull up and then the pegs will come out of you that way or you can do the one that i usually do which is buffalo skulls so on the outside of, of the circle the perimeter of it the, you um attach the uh the pegs in your back and then they attach that to like a row of buffalo skulls so it could be like one or two or seven or 12 or 13 or 14 and then uh you drag the buffalo skulls around from the pegs that are stuck into your back and i really like doing that because to me that's like the all like the ultimate moment of like clarity because you go around the circle that's like probably like three or four hundred meters in diameter and so you're walking around the circumference of it and then your those skulls are like 20 pounds each at least and so you get really heavy or they get really heavy you get really tired and then by the end of it like it just breaks you down totally completely and like like myself like i believe in like god but not like a very narrow definition of god like just sort of like everything you know everything in the universe i believe is you know good um and so you start as like for me it's like i start as wap canoe like for, like egotistical like big-headed you know rapper news reporter and like you know this and that and like good guy in the community and i start like that but then at the end by the time the lack of water and lack of food and lack of sleep and the physical pain and the sweating and like these cuts in my back and the blood and you know the exhaustion everything sets in and this it's all gone like everything disappears it's no more you there's no more now there's no more yesterday there's no more good there's no more bad it's just like everything is like together in like one moment you know it's like a crazy crazy experience like moment of clarity and uh, it lasts for like you know 10 seconds or something like that <laughs> and then you break and then you sort of snap out of it and come back to reality and but you just feel like I don't want to do anything bad after that because you're like I just felt like connected to everything for like a few short seconds so I don't want to I don't want to hurt anybody I just want to love I just want to be good to my kids I want to be good to my friends everything like that and so it's it's a beautiful thing like and you know I love it um and it's a really cool place where I go it's people people come from all over the world France, Germany, Japan, South America. So it's to really take cool. part or yeah, to, to participate. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah like our, our attitude is always like everybody is welcome. You know, everybody's welcome to to participate. Chris is coming to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> so Sundance is is something that was banned in Canada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was banned. Part of I guess residential schooling or previous to that it was banned. Or? Yeah, well, it was. Uh, it's more the Indian Act. The Indian Act was, so that's the law in Canada that, you know, governs Indian status Indians. Like, I have a status card in my wallet right now that says Swab Canoe is a Indian under the meaning of the Indian Act. And so the Indian Act created around the same time as the residential school era started. And it just defined all sorts of things. But um, it was part of this whole movement to outlaw the culture and outlaw the religion so that Native people would be Christianized. And so in a lot of places it worked and the, the people did become Christianized, but in a lot of places like South Dakota or Southern Manitoba, Northwestern Ontario, Saskatchewan, Alberta, people held on to it. And how they did it was they just like, um, they went underground. So they, they did it in, in, in secret or like the one I go to, the way they kept going was that they sent scouts out 
on horseback and then when they'd see the Indian agent or um, the missionaries coming they'd come running back and then they'd uh, like tell everybody and then they'd switch it all up and then like yeah and then they'd be like they'd be holding the bible when <laughs> like the Indian agent showed up so that it looked like they were doing like a mass or something like that it's crazy uh, yeah it? Had to do it, well, because up. what would happen was if you that you didn't, they would burn it down. Like yeah. in Canada, it was the Mounties would come and they would burn down the sweat lodges and burn down the arbor, or the or the the uh, the missionaries would come and tell the cops to do that. Is the point of that? Is it did the government of Canada feel that that was a threat, like a or it was it just well, like it's fact that what they wanted to do was to make native people into just like white farmers basically and so part of that was to take away the the way that they hunted and fished and you know, harvested uh, like uh, wild rice and stuff like that on the land and to to get them farming and then the other thing was to take away like our religion and our culture so that we'd become christianized mm -hmm. but in the states there was another influence like in south dakota which was that there was like the ghost dance movement and it was like tied to the sundance so like the sundance was the day and then the ghost dance was at night kind of thing and uh the ghost dance was like it was at the depth of like the time where all like the native tribes were being like you started started to lose the battles against the cavalry and they're being forced onto reserves there's a prophet in uh nevada who uh who had a vision that like you know, Native people could uh, become, you know, what they were in the past if they started practicing this new religion of the ghost dance. And so it spread across Nevada, Oklahoma, South Dakota, like all across the Midwest. And uh, when the people saw that, the Native people were uniting and that they were starting to follow like this one leader, like the ranchers and stuff were like, holy fuck, <laughs> these guys are going to like turn on us, you know? And so then that's when they came down heavy on the on the native spirituality because they saw it as like a, a threat to the order that was starting to be established in america yeah i guess that brought the massacre wounded knee yeah yeah that was like exactly they were, yeah because there were, were it was a ghost dance and they the people believed that like they that they wouldn't be killed but obviously they were proved wrong from that point in history up through residential schools up to now where you have the uh the Hidden Legacy Conference, and you have the Pope apologizing mm -hmm. uh, in part, and you have Harper apologizing, yeah. sort of. Where are we on the continuum from total colonization to to self-determination? Yeah, that's a tough one. I don't know. It's um, We're definitely colonized. Like, I mean, I speak English, and I work at CBC, and I drive a car, <laughs> you know? But... Uh, at the same time, like, I don't, like, I know that, like, our ways will never die. Like, when I was pulling skulls last year, like, I, I was leaving the Sundance Arbor and walking back to my camp, and my little boy is five years old, and he's walking behind me, and he said, you know what, Dad? I want to do what you just did when I'm older, you know? So I know, like, we will never be, we'll never disappear, you know? So it's sort of like uh, what's happening now is, like, how do we balance that? Like, how, do, how does a Native person be a member of the world but also like hang on to their identity and so it's something that everybody's working with all sorts of issues like you know like do we do you have to marry somebody else who's native or do you just you know 
apply to mate who you're just from any background or there's issues like that there's issues around like well what do i do for work like should i work at cbc in the mainstream or should i work at like a native organization and try and just help the community that way you know or do i help the community more by being in the mainstream so there's all sorts of different debates like that happening and uh i don't think anybody really has it figured out but like to me the most important the most important thing of that is like um you know if little kids are free to pursue like their happiness like in whatever way that they want to then like to me that's that's all that really matters like it's not really about um saying i'm i'm colonized or i'm decolonized or this and that like just as long as like you know little kids are are able to be whoever they want to be then that's you know it sounds cheesy it sounds like after school special but i think that's the important thing but the answer to my own question that i just posed there is that there's still a long way to go for that tons of kids in native communities uh, on the reserve grow up without uh, clean drinking water without a safe place to live they grow up in you know communities where their school is like years behind the national average and so they're not you know at a at an equal starting place and same thing in the city a lot of uh native kids you know coming out of families decimated by residential schools have learned just to be gangsters or have just learned to be party animals and so there's all these social problems in the city too so we're 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 like uh I don't want to say we're turning a corner now because there's been like lots of corners turned in the past, so to speak. But it seems like uh, the challenges of today are more along the lines of like, I think Native people have to, you know, rather than talk about self-determination, they just have to start determining themselves. You know? Yeah. And I guess the role of whatever white people and like or me and Chris or whatever, <laughs> the Polish and the... The Irish, the Irish, yeah, yeah. I guess our role is to understand where we are, understand the history, like the true history. Yeah, like I guess just to re- return to your earlier point, like the the thing, like non-native people, like I think um, the main thing is just like when you see injustice happening, just like stand up and say that that's wrong, you know? Like, yeah, exactly. Like because like well, like they say about the Holocaust, like never again. And so like I'd like to see that happen with like residential schools, like never again. Um, and so like the the question, are we going to let that happen again? And yeah. the the answer is yes, it's yeah. happening right now. Yeah. And I would know that Wab Wab Canoe, when he sees the Polish in distress, he will also. <laughs> Oh yeah, you know what I'm saying. Oh yeah, he's gonna represent. When there was the plane yeah. crash last year in Poland, I did the story on exactly. the Winnipeg response and See? how you know everybody's feeling bad here. What did you think that. of that, Todd? The president dying in the plane crash in Poland. What did I? <laughs> what did I think? Well, I heard actually was not too good of a guy. To tell you the truth, Wob. What if we played one of your songs? Mm-hmm. Could you pick it? Yeah, I thought of uh, playing uh, When I'm Gone, the song on, from my CD, Live By The Drum, just because I thought maybe it might appeal to your your fans a bit more than some of my more rap stuff. So there's some crunchy guitars on here that they might like. And what's going on with the song? The song's about suicide. My, my, my brother uh, told me, like, hey, why don't you write a song about suicide? And then he was telling me, like, because I feel like that sometimes. And... Uh, he actually like he tried to kill himself this one time he like hung himself by a noose and his girlfriend came downstairs and found him and she cut him down it's like super super tense moment so like i'm just 
like uh, just rapping from like that perspective, like I'm feeling suicidal. Yeah. Walk canoe when I'm gone. When I'm gone. I hate life, fuck it, this my final call A razor on my wrist and by 30 Tylenol A barrel in my head with the hammer cocked back A noose around my neck, ain't no way to stop that Standing on a pail, I'm about to kick the bucket Take a last look at this world, I say fuck it My family blind, they don't know that I'm hurting I'm gonna free them all from my life and it's burdened Turning to my girl, but she already left me Heartbroken, open, depression, plane swept me All my life, all I know is my pain alone My people were warriors and then they turned to bone Now what can I fight for that natives will agree on? More beers to drink, more beds for us to pee on The life of a survivor is nothing but pathetic Put a chef in the shoddy and inject Antiseptic. When I'm gone, you won't mind it. Looking for my place out here, I'm climbing. I'll be alone when I find it. Yeah, I'm alone and I'm so blinded. Yeah. I'm nothing, and no one's gonna miss me Just live and let die, and they'll easily forget me That knife on my skin, and for once I could feel On the real, I released my pain with the steel For long, I was low and thought I would pick up Now this feeling's set in, I know I'm a sick mutt Fucking life is a wasteland, stuck in the quicksand My friends moving on, I can't overcome addiction I'm watching them leave me, they don't wanna see me No time for us to chill or for them to believe me I was born to lose, got no points to prove This here ain't attitude, it's a soldier's blue Asked my dad for some help and he turned face flush Go ahead, kill yourself, he said to me in disgust What's left to discuss, time to end, walk the must My last ceremony, no God, just us When I'm gone, you won't mind Looking for my place You've been listening to Escape Velocity Radio. Thanks for joining us. That wraps up our first episode. I think we require some feedback. Send your email feedback to feedback at escapevelocityradio.com. That's a creative email address. Alternately, you can phone us. Believe it or not, you can phone us at 1-701-213-4483. That number again, 1-701-213-4483. Operators are standing by. You know what, Chris? We also need people to rate the show on iTunes. Why? Good ratings on iTunes improve your rankings. Give us a star rating. It'll help us find new listeners, or it will justifiably bury us at the bottom of the podcast listings. All right, Derek. We'll see you next month. Yeah, I'll see you next month. Have a good one. Escape velocity. Escape velocity. Ray. Ray. Ray.